Some of you may be saying, that was strange. I didn't know Denver was an elder, and he has, he has not become an elder. But um, one of the things that we are celebrating is that uh, Denver and Lydia have uh, decided to uh, surrender their life to ministry, and they'll be going to seminary this winter, in, in February or so. And so... Um, Two things. One thing is they want, we wanted to put Denver up in front of you. Uh, we want to uh, train him and, and help to bring him up and walk along beside of, of him. The other thing, and hopefully you got this email, is that we have recently um, started a new fund uh, that would help folks in our congregation who are looking to progress and go into the ministry uh, and to go to seminary. And so Denver and Lydia will be the first applicants uh, and there have there are others that I have encouraged to apply, and so we just wanted to let y'all know that uh, part of your tithes and offerings will be going there. Uh, there are also, and you'll hear about this in upcoming days. If if you were wanting to give to any of these folks just directly, you can do that through the church as well, and we'll make sure that the money gets there. So we're just uh, delighted and happy uh, for this journey that God is taking them on. And uh, uh, and and I do have to say, even though the the sermon this morning is not about not being prideful. Um, I think it was within the first six months of being here that I told Denver's mother, um, you know, I think Denver would make a good pastor. And so, uh, so it's neat to see that happening. Um, and just a, just a blessing, just a blessing to see. As we go through life... Um, in, in many different arenas, in many different ways, and in many different forms. We've all probably experienced this thing as we go through life where we come across somebody who is better than us at what we do, whether that's a vocation or a hobby, whether it's parenting, and sometimes that bothers us, doesn't it? I, it's interesting, some, I've known artists, I'm not an artist, I've known artists who have a really difficult time when they are around other artists or when they may see other paintings, that it, it bothers them. It kind of gets under their skin, especially if that artist is, is better than them. This happens with musicians as well. Uh, I, I play a little bit of music and almost gave up music altogether one time when I went and heard, uh, I, I play, used to play bass guitar a lot, heard this guy named Victor Wooten play the bass guitar, and I'm like, I'm done. He's so much better than me. But oftentimes, we have the opposite reaction. We, we kind of maybe get angry, and we uh, maybe start to give excuses. Well, you know, I think that person is better at painting than I am because maybe they don't have kids. Maybe they don't have the restraints that I have. And if I was just freed up, I could be as good and great as they are. If you have lived through the 90s and watched movies in the 90s, you have come across a movie that, or movies in which the part of the plot or the theme of the movie was a new kid moves into town and he's a better quarterback or a better basketball player than uh, the mayor or sheriff's kid in town. And there's all this rivalry and infighting, especially once he gets the girl. And we see and we know this theme because there's something inside of us as well that gets bothered when somebody else is kind of stepping on our turf or maybe are doing things that we want to do or that we do, they just do them a little bit better. 
we love our status, don't we? We love to be made much of. We love to be the best. And thankfully, this never happens in churches. We never brag about who's got the best church. We never get our feathers ruffled when the church down the road maybe has a higher attendance or a higher budget or a higher number of baptisms or more ministries. And pastors definitely don't do this. We never go to meetings and compare those sort of things. And we never leave those meetings saying, you know, if my elders were just a little bit better, I think we could, you know, get better at that. Or whatever the excuses may be. One time recently, uh, well, actually several years ago, um, I I kept hearing these uh, negative statements about a church in town, and I won't name the church, uh, but a church that was growing in popularity, and the statements I kept hearing were like, you know, they're growing in popularity because they are just man-centered. They just are tickling people's ears and people are running into this church left and right to have their ears tickled. That's Christian language, right? For um, not preaching the gospel, but, you know, just making people feel good. And so, you know, I did what any Christian would do. I just piled on. No, I didn't just pile on. I went and started listening to the sermons. And one of the things that I found was that, man, they were preaching the word. I listened to several sermons and in this study and I was just amazed not amazed but I was just thankful in my heart for what was going on and so then I was armed that every time I heard negativity I said listen I have never been there I haven't been a part of other things but I can tell you this the preaching that I hear coming from that pulpit is preaching that I would like to hear in my pulpit I'll let you in on some secrets. And I think my, the first sermon that I ever preached from here, I said something similar to this. I am not the best preacher in this city. There are other churches in this city that are doing great and wonderful things. There are churches in this city that are better at things than what we are. Some of you right now may be like, shh, Lewis, don't tell them. If you tell them that, they'll leave. <laughs> you know, those that are at other churches that are doing great things and wonderful things, they're not backslidden. They're not mistaken. If they're proclaiming the gospel at that church, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should be thankful for those churches. We should be thankful for the other churches on this mountain that are doing good work in the name of Christ and that are proclaiming the gospel. We are not in competition. You see, competition, whether it's whether the competition is in the form of being an artist or being a musician or being a a runner or being a preacher. Competition and that 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 desire in us to be defensive when others are good at what we like to do or what we are called to do, that is pride. And it's not of God. And God wants us to to, to snuff that out. Now be sure, in everything that we do, we are to do for the glory of God. 
So when we work, we are to work as unto the Lord. We should work hard. But if we're doing it in the right attitude for the right reasons, when there are others that pass us for promotions because they are smarter than us or more efficient than us, we can praise God for them. We can praise God if you're a musician and somebody is better than you, or if you're an artist, or if somebody is a better preacher than I am. We can praise God for the church down the street. One of the things that we're going to see this morning from our passage is that this kind of pride, this kind of competitive pride has no place in the Christian community. By very nature of what we sang this morning, and as Kurt talked about um, us being stones and, and us being trophies, if we truly understand what Kurt was talking about, then we truly understand that there's no place for pride. That the only reason we are a stone is because God in His mercy and grace took us and brought us and, and fit us for the work that we are to do. Last week, if you were here in the book of Mark, we were as we're going through this book, we came across this passage where the disciples were talking about who is the greatest. This pride had kind of popped up and as they were walking along, they're talking about who is the greatest. And remember what Jesus said to them. The last shall be first. The one that serves the least of these, that is the one that will be first. Pride in the life of a Christian comes from horrific theology. Pride comes from this horrific theology. A theology that puts me at the center, that I'm the main thing, that God in His design of the universe, that the whole purpose is to make much of me. So that we can see that if that is our theology, and I think we all struggle with this theology if we're honest, if that's our theology, then we're going to get bent out of shape pretty quickly. Or, or this other thing that we often do, where we think that we've got some kind of corner on Christianity, where we belong to some kind of secret society Christian that we're secretly blessed by God in such a way that makes us better than other people. That's pride. And God wants no part of that. Aren't you glad... Aren't you glad that God's patient with you? I sure am glad that God is patient with me. When I was younger, uh, when I was in college, God really got a hold of my life, and that's when I really started reading the Bible on my own and just started to, to digest it. And, um, you know, those days I knew everything. I was sure about every doctrine in the Bible. And one of the other things that I was sure about as I read the Gospels is that these disciples were just idiots. Over and over again, as I, as I would read the Gospels as, as I was young, I was like, man, these guys are just idiots. If I, was, if I was one of the disciples, I would have gotten it by then. As I've gotten older, as we're studying these Gospels, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that we see Jesus as He's walking along with these men, that God, in His, in His wisdom, gave us this revelation to, for us to see that even Christ 12, even these disciples, as God is walking with them on this journey, they don't get it. 
that this is a this is a path, this is a journey. That he is revealing things to them over time. And I just find so much comfort in the fact and how that they don't get it. Because I can see myself in these disciples. I can see myself being brought along in the, in the journey of faith. And this morning as we look at this text, we see another example of God teaching and pouring into these disciples as John just doesn't get it. We see that John has just missed the point again. As we're in this section, we know that what has happened is that there's been a change in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Mark. As Mark is writing this book, there was this big change when Peter made his confession that thou art the Christ, and then Jesus says, pick up your cross, deny, me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And Jesus is pouring into these disciples, and He's pouring into them that they may know how to live and how to do it this way. And then we have all these kind of instances pop up where we get good examples of, oh, that needs to be denied. That needs to be cut out. This is what the Christian walk and Christian journey looks like. And it's fascinating that one of the things that Mark has just pointed out to us is, remember if you were here, when the three disciples went up on the mountain, John was one of them, went up on the mountain and saw Jesus transfigured, they come down the mountain, and you remember the, the hubbub that was happening, do you remember why there was a hubbub? Because these disciples, a boy was brought to them that was demon-possessed, and they, they couldn't do anything about it. So Jesus teaches them a lesson, and we see that John didn't get it. John doesn't get it. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Understand what was going on. The disciples back here couldn't cast out this demon. And one of the things that we saw in that passage that Jesus made it crystal clear is that the reason they couldn't do it is because they, they were looking in their own power. They weren't depending upon God. And then all of a sudden we come across this instance where this guy is casting out these demons in the name of Jesus and John thinks it's a good idea to say, whoa, 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 you can't do that. You're not one of us. You're not one of the in crowd. And John took it on himself that it was his job to kind of regulate the work of God and make sure that that was happening in the right orderly fashion. And so John comes up to this exorcist and says, nope, wait, 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 wait. And can you imagine? I'm going to read into the text here. There's no evidence of what I'm getting ready to say. But let's just think for a moment. Think if this was another father with another son whose son had been tormented since birth by demonic powers. And this man had seen this exorcist who's unnamed casting out demons in other places in the name of Jesus. He's so anxious for his son to be free. And then one of the disciples comes up and says, no, 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 stop. Hmm. It's 
It's an interesting verse. Verse 40. For he who is not against us is for us. This could be the political slogan of the day, right? There's no gray. There are no fuzzy lines. There's no overlap. If you're not for us, you're against us. A lot of times as we go into conversations with people that we meet for the first time, we're trying to decide, ooh, are they a Republican or a Democrat? What kind of language are they using? We want to put people into categories. And even if we find out they're a Republican, then we have to find out, are they a always Trumper or a never Trumper? Like there's no ambiguity or in between those two categories or three categories or four categories. It's interesting that our country is so divided that there's no nuance, there's no discussing. There are just lines that have been drawn and they're rigid. And at times in our Christian life, we do the same thing. That as we're meeting with people, we say, ooh, wait a minute, ooh, one of those Baptists. Ooh, there's a Methodist, there's a Presbyterian. And we draw these rigid lines, and we act, and we speak, as if God can't work in somebody's heart, and in somebody's life, and in somebody's church, because they may not belong to the specific tribe that we do. I want you to hear these verses again. And I want you to hear the theme. I'm actually going to back up to verse 37. And I'm going to emphasize the theme. Whoever receives one child like this in my name. Receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me. But him who sent me. John said to him. Teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Notice the emphasis there was on the name, the name of Jesus Christ, that this man was casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and John didn't even hear, I think, that part of it. He heard enough to be able to recite it, but there was something missing. There was something that was in the way in his life. There was, I think it was pride. And he ran up to him and he stopped him. Now, you may be asking, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Lewis. Wait a minute, Lewis. Now, are you turning liberal on us? Are you meaning that all you have to do is just pronounce the name of Jesus and anything you do in you pronouncing that name is right? Absolutely not. The Bible is full of instances in which people um, are apparently doing things, trying to do things in the name of Jesus, and the Bible says it's not good. Remember Simon the magician in the book of Acts? That Simon was saved gloriously. 
And then the disciples come and they are baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon hears of this, do you remember what Simon does? He wants to buy the power. And the disciples have none of it. That's not the point. Simon was trying to make it about Simon. Simon wanted the power. What about the verses in the Bible like in Matthew chapter 7? Where it talks about that there are false prophets and and Matthew calls them ravenous wolves. That they are deceiving people. And then we get this verse where it says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, oh, yeah, since you use the name, you're okay. No. He says, I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That you can use the name, but if your goal is self-exaltation, then you're not doing it in the name of Jesus. You're doing it in the name of John, or the name of Lewis. Look at John's problem again in verse 38. We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following Jesus. He wasn't following us. Isn't that interesting? John's concern should have been, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, in Jesus, we just want to make sure that this person is doing, is following you. (laughs) But instead, John uses the word, us. John's vision had become too narrow because pride had crept in. You see, I think when we see ourselves soberly, when we understand the gospel that we are its sinners in need of God's grace and there is nothing that we can do to bridge that gap that God is the one who provided a way in Jesus Christ that Jesus comes and dies on the cross for our sins so that all who trust in him have a relationship with him that it's the work of God it's the work of Christ in our life that gets us there when we truly 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 understand that that helps us defeat pride If we were to look back at the Old Testament, there's this wonderful example of how a godly leader should handle things when we look at Moses. And Moses didn't always handle things correctly. But do you remember when Moses was Moses was overwhelmed most of his ministry? But Moses was overwhelmed and he had petitioned to God and God gave him this. So what Moses does is Moses gathers 70 men from the elders And they go with him to his tent and God comes and meets them there. And he puts his spirit on some of them. And some of them, the Bible says in the book of Numbers, prophesy. And then they ceased. And then this really weird thing happened. There were people that weren't at the special meeting. There were people that weren't at the tent in the community. And people come to Moses and said, well, wait a minute. There are these two men that weren't at the meeting. And they're prophesying. So what does Moses do? Moses says, get them, let's stone them. That's not what Moses did. Moses utters this statement. 
I wish all of you would prophesy. It shows his humility. It shows that he knows that God can work in and through the lives of other people and not just him. Or what about Paul in the book of Philippians? This is, a, this is an amazing one. In the book of Philippians, we learn that there were some preaching the gospel and part of their motivation were doing it was to kind of get in on Paul. And people came to Paul and said, what about this? And Paul said, no, you're right, God's going to crush him. No, we see the humility of Paul, that Paul understood who he was as a vessel of Christ and that he was, that's all he was, was a vessel. That his greatness was not attached to his oracle skills or anything else that was attached to who he was in Christ. And so Paul says this, hey, leave him alone. If the name of Christ is being proclaimed, leave him alone. That's what I am rejoicing in. You know, the gospel divides. The gospel divides. There's only one way to heaven. That's through belief in Jesus Christ. And that divides. But oftentimes, oftentimes, the divisions that are taking place in churches and in Christian communities aren't about the right things. The real divisions are about my ministry and your ministry. My kingdom and your kingdom. And you know what? It's not about that. When I was in college, um, I met two guys that uh, really we just became the best of friends and they had something in common. They both liked to kayak and they were pretty crazy. They would do these crazy kayaking adventures and so um, one of them talked me into going whitewater kayaking on the Ravage Ravage um, Hawassie, which if you've been on the Hawassie, it's not a Ravage River. It was my first time actually in a kayak, and if, if you've kayaked before, one of the things that you know, if you've whitewater kayaked, you have what's called a spray skirt. It keeps water out of the boat, which is important. You don't want to sink. You don't want to go under the water, and so it keeps water out. And so the only problem was this guy only had one spray skirt. He got that. Uh, the other problem was is that it was summertime, and we thought it was a good idea. We, <laughs> we started on the river, I think, about 7.30 in the evening. And so before too long, it was dark. And so get this, dark on this river. And there, there are little ledges. And I promise you, when it's pitch dark, it sounds like a waterfall. So I kept panicking. Like, oh no, you know, I'm never going to get down this river. And he just kind of coaxed me through that. You're going to be okay. It's just a ledge. I'm right here with you, you, you know. And, um, and yeah, it was an adventure. We, we probably paddled for a couple of hours in the dark, which was terrifying and awful. Um, but think about this. How crazy would it have been if the next day I went back to college and started proclaiming what a great kayaker I was? I am such a great kayaker that I can even go down the raging Hiawassee River without a spray skirt my first time ever. 
You see, the reality of the situation was this. I had no ability. I had no plan. I was totally dependent upon my friend. That my friend had been there before, and so my success on the river was, was because I was dependent upon someone who had done it before. And isn't this the key to our Christian life? That if we're a Christian, we are saying that we are dependent upon the Lord for our strength, for our power, for grace, for wisdom, for mercy, for life. And problems arise... Problems arise when we forget the reality of our dependence and our power is in our dependence. Our ability to navigate is in our dependence. When we forget that and we take that on ourselves, and then we wonder, why in the world is my boat sinking? Remember when Jesus sent out these disciples initially, he sent them out without food, without substance, and we talked about that. that the reason was because they, wanted, they needed their dependence to be on the Lord, that He sent them out without anything. A couple weeks ago, again, when we talked about when they couldn't perform this exorcism, that this kind, that they needed prayer, they needed dependence. You see, John, this exorcist that he's facing in this passage, us, we have no power in and of ourselves. I'm going to let you in on a secret. The Bible says, if there's anyone here that's sick among you, do what? Call the elders and have them come pray. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Your elders have no power to heal you. Your elders have no power to help you navigate difficult situations in your life. Your elders have no power to pray that the depression lifts, no power to expect that anything would happen. We just don't have it. But praise be to God that it's not dependent upon us. Praise be to God that the power that is at work in and through the church of God is not based on the guy who's in the pulpit or the men in the elder room or the various people in various ministries, but the power is in the God that enables us to serve. It's fascinating to me. Fascinating to me in the in the book of Luke, and you don't have to turn there. I will turn over there, and I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna read two verses. But in the book of Luke, it's interesting. I don't know if this happened before this account or after, but in the book of Luke, we see that Jesus sends out seventy others, non apostles. He sends out seventy others. He sends them out two by two, and they were amazed because they said that even the demons were coming out in your name. They come back to Jesus, and they were amazed at what was happening. They were like, Jesus, even the demons fled when we mentioned your name. And then we get to these great verses in verse 19 and 20. 
Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. And then, so, so think if you heard that. You'd be like, let's roll. Let's go. I just want to walk on snakes just because. Give me a scorpion. Then notice what Jesus says. Because I think He knows our tendency to want to make much of ourselves. He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Don't boast in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Don't think too much of yourselves. Remember who you are. You are mine. You're part of my kingdom. It's about me. Rejoice in that. And as you go along the path, if you can stay there, you will experience much power. It just brings up the foolishness of some kind of crazy thing like Louis Belva Ministries. It makes my stomach turn sometimes when I watch TV and hear of such things. Nobody's trying to make Lewis Belvin Ministries, by the way. But you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it's just crazy. It is crazy when we live the Christian life in such a way where it's more about us and we forget where the dependence is. And then that leaves us in this really weird place where we're then judging other people. And we do this really weird thing when, you know, the Southern Baptist Street Church down the street has this wonderful event. We kind of get prideful and about it instead of rejoice. When we hear that the Presbyterian Church down the street is growing and God is doing great things, we start to grumble. I want you to notice something in this text. Let's read verse 41. And I, It's interesting because when you first read this account, I think you, you might think this verse is out of place. So Jesus has confronted John. He just has said, for he who is not against, is, he who is not against us is for us. And then he says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Isn't this fascinating? What in the world is Jesus saying? Let me ask you a question. Uh, don't raise your hands. This would cause maybe a stir. I was going to say, who among you have cast out a, a demon out of somebody? Some of you may say, you don't know my two-year-old. I think we did a pretty good job. No. Don't raise your hands. Who among you has healed someone who's not a physician? You should be very glad this verse is here. One of the other things that I think must have been wrong in John's thinking is that John was looking at this whole big thing of this exorcism ministry of casting demons out of people and Jesus comes and says this. John... 
If somebody gives you a drink of water, if somebody serves you because of their relationship with me, notice what it says. They might not lose their reward. It says they will never lose their reward. Now this will be contrasted, I think, should be contrasted um, by some of the verses that Gary will get into next week that says if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out for it's better for you to go through life with only one eye than to be cast into hell. And in contrast to that, what we see is that Jesus is saying, if you give a cup of water in my name. And I think what Jesus was doing and what Jesus wants us to see and He wants us to get is that He rejoices in people who in His name are doing any act of faith, whether it's giving water or casting out demons. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 12, which I thought about reading, but it would make this sermon way too long, where it talks about all the different parts of the body and how all the different parts of the body are needed. And, and it talks about how we are to look and that we are to rejoice, even some of over the dishonorable parts. So the question that I would have for you, are you walking forward in simple acts of obedience in His name, in His power? And are you rejoicing in the great reward that God has for you? The goal is to walk and act in His power for His glory. And to never say, I'm just somebody who gives out water. Your tribe, your group, is powerless. You're powerless to hand out water and you're powerless to exercise, exercise demons out of people. And there's some of you this morning, if I were to mention the certain tribes that are represented within Christianity, would say, oh, no, no, wait a minute. Here is our leader, and here's what he or she has done for the kingdom. And again, you're missing the point. The point is to pray that we may never get so prideful to neglect and forget that it's God who does the work and that we are just vessels. And that we may never get so prideful that we don't know that what unites us is the gospel. And that we should be united around this gospel to serve the least of these for the glory of God in our church, in our city, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us courage and strength, the right kind of courage and strength, the kind of courage and strength that is rooted in Your name. Not rooted in our um, knowledge. Not rooted in our skill set. Not rooted in what the world may look and say, hey, this guy's really got it going for him. But God, help us to be plugged into the right source of power. And that is dependence, humble dependence upon You. This is only possible through your son Jesus who died for us while we were yet sinners.